Good morning, everyone. Good to have you all here as we are worshiping our great God and Savior, Jesus. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9. It will also be up on the screen for you. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Imagine being in a completely dark room, not a sliver of light coming from under the door, not a window to see the stars outside, not a, not a red battery light on a smoke detector, nothing in the room. And you don't have anything to make lights. No phone, no matches, no lighter, no flashlights. There's only utter blackness. And to make matters worse, you're locked in the room and you can't get out. If you were in a situation like that, what would be the first thing you'd want to do? You'd want to look for a light switch, probably. But, but what if the electricity has been disconnected and all you can do is grope in the darkness? I did this once, uh, actually, just to see how it kind of felt. Um, it was actually rather disturbing. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face, and it felt like the darkness was pressing and touching me like a, like a blanket that I couldn't get out from under. So what do you do? If you can't make light, you'd have to depend on something or someone else to bring in light and dispel the darkness. And can you imagine if you were in a room like that and, and someone finally comes in to get you out, the relief and the joy of seeing light and getting out of that room. Scripture tells us that we are people that come into this world in darkness, under the oppression of sin and Satan. And it's not just something that is outside and around us. 
it's in us as well. We need someone qualified and capable to dispel the darkness and deliver us into the light of life. That's what we discover in our passage this morning. I, I have two titles for this sermon. The first one will be very familiar to you, and I think you'll like it. It's called, For Unto Us a Child is Born. We, we know that one. Uh, but the second would be a bit uh, more unfamiliar. Darkness dispelled, joy increased by sunlight. S-O-N, sunlight. Darkness dispelled, joy increased by sunlight. Now to fill that out a little bit, we can say that the main point of the message this morning is that the darkness of sin can only be dispelled by the wonder child born to deliver us into everlasting joy. This is perhaps the most familiar and most treasured prophecy of the coming of Jesus into the world. And, and while the passage absolutely looks forward to the first Christmas, I'd like to look at the situation in Isaiah's time and what led to that prophecy. So we're going to begin by looking at our first major point, the deep darkness of sin. The deep darkness of sin. Earlier in the book, uh, God calls Isaiah to bring a message of judgment to the people of uh, Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel. If you remember, after King Solomon, Israel had been divided into two nations, the northern kingdom called Israel, and then the southern kingdom called Judah. The people's hearts had begun to wander away from the Lord. Now, they were outwardly religious, but they had also adopted occult practices from the surrounding nations. They were worshiping idols, they were indulging in gross immorality, and they were treating each other with contempt and injustice. And because they had turned their backs on God, he brings judgment on them. How does he do it? He sends the superpower from the north, Assyria, to invade the land and to take the people captive. However, before Assyria ever gets to Judah, the Assyrians would first enter through and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, beginning with the provinces of Naphtali and Zebulun in the region of Galilee. So the darkness and gloom of enemy oppression began in this region. It was also there that the Syrians would bring in pagan peoples to occupy the land and then to introduce their own culture and religious practices. It was a way of weakening the nation that had been there before. You get all these other nations to come in, they're not going to gain, uh, uh, get their forces together and try to revolt. And because of this mixing of peoples and cultures, Zebulun and Naphtali became a despised region to the Jews from that time on and into the time of the New Testament. This is the former time of contempt that we read, on, read of in verse 1. But, but this darkness is not merely the oppression of enemy occupation, but the spiritual oppression of having turned to God and turning to their own ways. When, when the people came under the yoke of sin, sin was their master. And there was nothing that they could do to free themselves from it. 
The physical enemies were a picture of the truer enemies of sin, of Satan, and God's judgments. These were the most devastating spiritual enemies of Israel, and they are the enemies of all mankind. Now, there are all kinds of troubles and trials that we face in life. Clearly, there are political concerns, social and cultural ones. There might be financial issues. You're, you're struggling with physical issues. All kinds of things that can burden you or get you riled up, right? We give our time and energy to overcoming these things because we react to them as if they were our great enemies at times. We murmur and complain. We rage and we resist. We demonize those who don't think like we do. If we don't do it in our words, we do it in our minds. We do that with those who just disagree with us and sometimes even those with those who are in our church family. And yes, we know we may, we may know that those things, all those issues that we're talking about, that they're not really our great enemies, but, but friends, sometimes we function like they are because we react to them as if we forget that Jesus told us that in the world, you're going to have troubles. It's coming. Don't be surprised by this. And we can forget that those troubles are in the world. They're in us because of sin. Now, we can, we can and should be concerned about those things. We should appropriately uh, re respond to them. We, we should address them with Bible truth and with Jesus' character. Sometimes we, we respond with our own truth and our own character. We, we need Bible truth, gospel truth, character of Christ to respond. But what we and others ultimately need is deliverance from sin because that is the great enemy of mankind. Everything I mentioned, all of those issues and concerns, why are they here? Because of sin in the world. And we think that we can try to figure them out and work them out on their own. It's like putting band-aids on things that never cure because the issue, the enemy, is sin. The Bible is the story of what God has done and is doing to eradicate sin in the world and in us. The people of Isaiah's time had forgotten God. They're indulging in sin, and so they're deserving of judgment. And so all people, even now, all people who live without any real love for God, any real submission or reference to God, all people are under the deep darkness of, of sin and the judgment of God. But praise God. Judgment is never the end of the story with him. That brings us to our second major point, the hope of joy that is to come. The hope of joy. Hope for the people would actually come through, check this out, it would come through the region that we had talked about earlier that was most despised, through Zebulun and Naphtali of Galilee. It was called the place of contempt, but it would also be the place where gloom would turn to glory in the latter times. Now, how would that come about? Verse 2 tells us, a light has come. Light in Scripture is often associated with the beginning of a new day, with a new work of God beginning. 
It also represents God's favor, that is, his, his grace and his kindness and the joy that comes as a result. And so what is this new thing that God is doing? What, what is this particular kindness that he's showing? It says in verse 3 that the nation, that is God's people, the nation would be multiplied. Remember, this is happening in the area of Galilee. Remember what happened there? All these people groups have come and, and mixed in. They've come to dwell there. And so it seems that God multiplies the nation by including foreign peoples from this despised region into the very people of God. More and more people are going to hear about Israel's God. They're going to hear that he is a rescuing, merciful, and forgiving God who will save those who put their trust in him. And so this brings great joy to all from every nation who would embrace this God. But what exactly is this light? How will God make this new thing happen? We have a perfect explanation of this new thing in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. We read there. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The beginning of Jesus' ministry is the end of the gloom and the darkness. Christ himself is the light that would dispel it. He makes this despised region glorious. How? With his preaching and his presence. And in him, the promise God made to Abraham centuries before. Remember what God said to Abraham? You're going to be a father of many nations. All the families of the earth would be blessed in you according to the faith that you have in me. That's how the, the nations are going to be blessed. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But this joy can only come to those who know they're in darkness and who must depend on someone else to deliver them from it. That's why Jesus says, repent. Repent, turn from going your own way. Turn from your sin. Turn from it. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So perhaps you're here this morning and you are walking in darkness. Are you? Do you see the oppression of sin in your heart, in your life? Do you know that you need help? Do you know that you need someone to dispel that darkness for you because you can't do it on your own? If that's you, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Repent and trust in me. Your darkness will be dispelled and your joy will be increased. Friends, this morning, if you 
really don't know Jesus, if you don't have your hope in him, he's saying, just admit what's true. The darkness of sin has impacted your life in every way. And there's nothing that you can do. He says, but I've done it all for you. Come to me and I will give you the help and salvation that you need. Moving on, we then discover how this darkness is dispelled and how joy is increased. We see it in the oppression of the enemy being broken. We find this in verses four to six. In verse four, we read about the yoke, the burden, the rod. These are all images of harsh enemy oppression. They've all been removed. They've been broken by the light. And notice that the deliverance is compared to the victory that was experienced, as it says, in the day of Midian. Okay, so what's this about? Maybe you remember this, this young man named Gideon. Right? Gideon was this timid young man who was instructed by God to go and fight against the Midian army that had invaded Israel. This army had at least four times as many soldiers than Gideon had. Four times. <clears throat> and even with so few soldiers, God says, mm, you know what, that's a bit too much. I'm going to whittle you down to about 300 guys. 300 against over 120,000. The odds were bad before when he had everybody. This ensures decimation. But these 300 guys, they never even had to fight. You know what they had to do? They had to hold up a torch, they had to blow a trumpet, and they had to smash a jug. And all they got to do is cry, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And you know what happens? The enemy army is confused. They start fighting each other and they are overwhelmed. Not because Gideon's army was so great or strong or smart, but because it was a victory that only God could have accomplished. Same thing's true in our passage. Assyria was way too strong for Israel. Breaking their oppression was only something God could do. It would have to be a divine deliverance. Just as in the case of our spiritual deliverance from sin, our only means of rescue is that God would have to do something for us. You know what happens? We think sometimes that if I just turn over a new leaf, if I just do a bunch of good stuff, if I try really hard to be godly and good, then, then, then God will accept me. And, and then I'll have what I need to come before God. The, the truth is, friends, we cannot be good enough and we cannot do enough good to get to God on our own. Because you know what it would require? You've got to be perfect. I know you. Nobody in here is perfect. But Jesus is. Jesus. Jesus perfectly did for us what you can't do. He perfectly did for us what you need for your salvation. He is our only means of rescue. This is the first reason Isaiah gives for why the darkness is dispelled and the joy increased. He breaks the enemy, the enemy's oppression. Second reason we see in verse 5, enemy weapons are burned 
and they fuel our faith. Enemy weapons are burned and they fuel our faith. Not only would God defeat the enemy, he would eradicate the weapons of war used against his people, including the very uniforms and the boots that the enemy is wearing. Again, in the spiritual realm, God alone can disarm our enemy uh, and their weapons against us that we might know deliverance and joy. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that by Jesus' death and resurrection, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. These are, these are our d- demonic enemies. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Our enemies are disarmed. But then we read... In Ephesians 6, where it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do we wrestle against? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, in Colossians, it says that the demons are disarmed. In Ephesians, it says they're still fighting. So, are they defeated and disarmed? Or are they still waging war against God's people? Yes and yes. By faith in Jesus, by faith in what he did in his death on the cross, in his victorious resurrection for our forgiveness, the forces of evil have been given a death blow. What is the power of Satan? What is the power of demons? Is that they accuse people before God of their sin. God, that one can't stand before you. He's got, he's got sin. He's in the darkness of sin. Can't come before God. Well, that power is gone. It is disarmed forever for those whose faith is, is, is in Jesus. We are able, if you're in Christ, you are able to stand before God in him. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and the demons have no power to accuse us. None. Amen, that's right. And yet, and yet, we still, they, they still battle, attempt to battle against God's people. How do, how do we understand this? Author Jerry Bridges, uh, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, gives an, an illustration of this. In it, he speaks of a civil war that happened, I think, somewhere in Central Asia. And, and at one point, there's these, you know, these two belligerents, these two uh, warring factions, and one side wins the war. It's a decisive victory. But after that victory, the losing side keeps fighting battles here and there throughout the country. Now, the war was over, but there were still attempts on the losing side to intimidate, to discourage, and to wear down. But it was a losing battle. Same is true for our spiritual battle in Jesus. And then interestingly, back in verse 5 of our passage, it says that the boots and the garments, the uniforms of these soldiers are going to be burned as fuel. Well, what is fuel? Fuel is just a material or energy that is used to produce power, to produce something useful. And so for us, God turns the enemy's advances, the enemy's attacks into fuel that serves us to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our love 
and our dependence on Jesus. This morning, you may be experiencing trials and turmoils. I'm sure you are. An old friend of mine said, everyone you meet, everyone, is carrying some kind of a burden. Be gentle with them all. So I'm sure there is suffering, trial, sickness, disappointments. Maybe you even feel in despair. Now, none of those, none of them are ever a waste. They're never meaningless. They are never, never an indication that God has forgotten you or that he is distant or that he doesn't love you. Never. In fact, it's at times like these where we, can, we should think God is most faithful and loving. Why? Because he knows what our hearts are like. That they're weak and they're prone to wander. And so he, he brings difficulties so that we will depend on him, that we'll keep turning to him and to desire him above all, right? When you're going through something, what do you do? You cry out to Jesus. When you're not sure what's going on, you cry out to Jesus. When you're hurting and, and feeling like you're, you're just making a mess of things, you cry out to Jesus. Don't disdain the trials and the sufferings that come, friends. Think about Romans 5. Paul says, amazingly, we rejoice in our sufferings. You're doing much rejoicing lately? Paul says he is. We rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because suffering leads to perseverance. What's that? Perseverance, the ability to keep going, right? To keep going with Jesus. That's what suffering does. And, and perseverance produces character. What kind of character? The character of Jesus. We're becoming, because we have to depend on him, we're becoming more like him. And character produces hope. And what's hope? The steady, the settled assurance that what God said he's going to do, he will do in your life. And then it goes on to say, and hope doesn't put us to shame. When Jesus returns, when our hope is in him, we have nothing to fear. There's no, nothing to hide from him. Hope doesn't disappoint because God's love has been poured into us. Not that God has forgotten us, not that God doesn't love us. God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is God's faithful, faithful and loving hand on you. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me on the rock of ages. Brothers and sisters, we need help to kiss the waves. We want, we want the, like the bay, right? So you can go paddle boarding on it, right? It's calm, it's nice and easy, right? We don't want to go out on the waves. We need to kiss the waves and, and, and we need help to do it because I like to resist the waves. But God uses the very weapons of our enemy's warfare to fuel and sustain our faith. Lastly, the, the ultimate reason for the dispelled darkness and the increased joy, a child is born. 
Remember, this was originally written to people who had been under the oppression of enemy captivity. So it's a physical reminder of what's going on spiritually, the spiritual reality. Although those people in Israel deserved this judgment because they had continued in their sin, yet God offers hope because he's faithful to always redeem, to keep a people to himself. Hope comes to God's people as a child that is born. He is a true human baby who will have the full authority of God to govern, to rule God's people. It will be on his shoulders. And what will this wonder child be like? He's first of all a son. Later in verse 7, we read that he would reign on David's throne, which means that he is in the, the family lineage of King David. He is a son of David, but not just David's son. When God promised David that this son would reign eternally, he said, and you know what? He's going to be a son to me. He's going to be my son. In Psalm 2, it says of this future reigning king, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then in Hebrews 1, we read that Jesus is this son. He's the one whom the father said at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if that's not enough to hold this wonder child in awe, he is further described with four names in verse 6. He is, first of all, a wonderful counselor. More literally, he is a wonder, a counselor. This word wonder indicates the power of God himself to do supernatural wonders. So it's the first indication that this child, this son, is God. And as a counselor, he has perfect wisdom because he's God, perfect wisdom. And that wisdom that we need is available to all who believe in him. And then he's called mighty God. This can also be translated warrior God, which means that this wonder child has all power to fight on behalf of his people. When you're in those spiritual battles, you're not alone. You're not fighting them on your own. You have ultimate power with you. His power to give victory over our enemies and the darkness of sin. He's then called Everlasting Father. This one can raise a few eyebrows uh, because we often, when we think of Jesus, we often don't think of him as a father. Hardly ever. Because that would be the name we use for the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. So how can Jesus be a father? As we look at various descriptions of Jesus, we see that he is father-like in a number of ways. Later in the book of Isaiah, in, in chapter 53, the, the prophet speaks of a suffering servant who will come to rescue his people. That servant is, is identified with, equated with this wonder child. It says there that when he becomes an offering for the people's sins, he shall see his offspring, his children. Meaning that when, when Jesus dies for sin, all who trust in him, he makes them into a new family, family of God. 
He also tells his father, uh, followers, Jesus tells his followers in John 14, 18, that when he leaves them, he will not leave them as orphans. He's going to come to them. He, he, he will not leave them fatherless. And then earlier in that same chapter, when the disciples asked Jesus to show them the Father, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Christ and the Father are so united, they're so connected. To see one is to see the other. So there is this very real sense that Jesus is fatherlike to God's redeemed children, and he will do that everlastingly. And then we read that he is the prince of peace. That is, he rules over his people as one who gives peace and makes peace. This word peace in, in the scripture is not merely talking about, you know, kind of a lack of difficulties or, or kind of learning how to deal with difficulties well so you kind of have a calm, sense of calm about them. It, it can mean that. But more fully, it means reconciliation. Two parties that have been separated come back together again. And, and so it means also wholeness or completeness. Again, in Isaiah 53, we see where it says that the punishment on this, this wonder child, this suffering servant, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So by faith in this suffering son, we who were once alienated, alienated from God because of our sin, we are now reconciled. We have wholeness. We, we begin to experience life as it was meant to be. And this is, in fact, how his government is established. Not only because he is a mighty God, not only because he rules in peace, not only because he works wonders and is perfect in wisdom, not only because he is a father to the redeemed children of God. No, the government, check this out, his government was established on his shoulders because he carried a cross on his shoulders. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep, all of us, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. In love, Jesus dies and redeems for himself a people that he's going to lead, he's going to govern, he's going to rule. And what kind of rule is it? It's a rule of perfect love. It's a rule of peace, justice, and righteousness forever. This is who he is. This is what this wonder child was born to do. So how should the truth of this wonder child affect us? Not just at Christmas, not just for this season, but every day. I want to go back to verse 1, to the place where the, his ministry of light began to the nations in Zebulun and Naphtali. Remember, Jesus was multiplying the people of God by bringing his light to the nations of the world. This was God's plan. It is God's plan to bless the nations through faith in this child who was given. And he was given to us. He was born for us that we might give him to others. That's where Jesus began his ministry of light, right? In Galilee, in Zebulun, and Naphtali. 
his ministry on earth ends where? When he's coming to his disciples and he says, go now and make disciples of all the nations. I have all authority. That's what we're called to do. To talk to people about Jesus. To see them converted. Coming to faith and coming into the people of God. And sometimes, friends, that's just a real struggle for us, isn't it? Just talking about them is a struggle. And though there, there, there's many reasons we might have because why it's so hard, it's typically some kind of a fear, right? I, I wonder if underlying all of those fears, something more basic is that we struggle making or keeping this wonder child as our great treasure. We struggle to keep him as supremely valuable to us. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does this mean? Whatever, it means whatever you value, whatever you really value, is going to have your attention, it's going to have your energy, it's going to have your money, it's going to have your love. That's your heart. But when Christ is marginally valuable, or occasionally valuable, then telling others, let alone going to other nations, is going to be a challenge. Think of it this way. A pastor friend of mine in Vineland uh, named Roberto was diagnosed with colon cancer when he was just a young man of 31. This This is just a few years ago. He called me to tell me about it and asked me to pray. He was really downcast when he called because, not just because of the diagnosis, but because he didn't have great insurance and he didn't really have a good doctor that would deal with this particular type of cancer. So we prayed together and I I told him I would pray. Within the next half an hour, maybe hour at the most, I get into a conversation with a woman in our congregation, Sharon Garrett. I start telling her Roberto's story and she says, you, you, you know what? You've got to get him to see Dr. So-and-so at Cooper Medical Center. We're going to call him Dr. Smith just because that's easy, right? Um, so right away, she gets on the phone and she calls Dr. Smith's assistant on her private line, right? And she gets my friend Roberto an appointment with that doctor two days later. Within two weeks, Roberto is at Cooper Hospital. He has his surgery. The cancer is removed and he's been cancer-free for five years now, Right? Now, yeah, right on, right on. That was a gift of God, right? Now, why was Sharon Garrett so keen to get my friend into this doctor and into that hospital? Because her husband, Bob, had the same cancer, had colon cancer. And that doctor and those people at the hospital cured Bob of his colon cancer. Those people became valuable. What they were able to do became valuable to Sharon and Bob because they saved his life. And because they were valuable to him, to them, they had a particular zeal and a passion to help someone else who had the same disease as Bob. Now, this is going to sound cliche, but it's true nonetheless. Jesus is the doctor of our souls. And the church, that is, the believers of Jesus, we are the hospital. 
the people that he works through to deliver people from the darkness of sin. And so when we gather, when we hear God's words preached, when we pray together, when we have fellowship together, when we join in the ordinances of the church, we celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are all means, all gifts God gives us to bring us into light, life and into spiritual health. And he gives those to help us remember what we have been saved from and what we've been saved to. And not only to remember, but to delight in and prize the one who's done it for us. Friends, sometimes we are just forgetful people, right? We forget what we've been cured from. We forget how we've been rescued from this deep darkness that is covering us and in us. And and we forget that we have been brought into the light. We forget how dark the darkness was and how glorious is the light. And sometimes we just forget our first love. It's like what we read of in Revelation 2 about the, the church in Ephesus. There the glorified Jesus speaks to this church and he says, you know, you're doing a lot of good stuff. You got a lot of good things going on. But I do have this against you. You've abandoned. You've forsaken your first love. It's us sometimes, isn't it? It's me. I forget my first love's love and, and other things become more valuable and more prized to me. So I had originally cut this story out because I thought it was stupid, but I'm, I'm, I'm using it. <clears throat> so the other day, I'm coming to work and I wanted to leave early because I wanted to go to my favorite coffee shop and get one of their amazing muffins, okay? So I get the muffin, right? And it's chocolate chip and coconut. And I open it up and it's like, perfect. The chocolate is still gooey. The, the shards of coconut are spread out evenly through. It's just a little slightly crispy on the outside, perfectly moist. And it was a perfect muffin. It was a wonder to me. I was loving that muffin. And I was like, this is awesome. And as I'm eating it, I'm like, I'm like liking it in my mouth. But my soul felt kind of small. Not because God doesn't want me to enjoy a muffin. You can enjoy muffins. You can enjoy good things, hobbies, friends, whatever. The eagles, if you have to. Um, (laughs) You can enjoy all of that and not feel any guilt. But I think it was God reminding me, he wants me to make him supremely valuable. At that moment, the muffin was really valuable. I got a text from someone after the first service. It said, you know what? Sometimes I love muffins more than Jesus too. Sometimes we love things more than Jesus, don't we? And again, it's not because those things are wrong. But when that it happens, Jesus isn't like, oh, what's wrong with you? Why, why are you loving that thing more than me? What are you, what are you nuts? Jesus loves his children. And he says, Come and see what I've done. What kind of Savior is that? 
who would come when we're loving other things that have little to no value and he comes alongside us and puts his arm around us and says, come and see what I've done. Come and see this great thing that I've done for you. See how great I, not because Jesus has a big ego and because he needs, you know, some building up, but because he knows what we need. We need him more than anything. So how can he be our great treasure? Not by just doing a bunch of good stuff for him, right? Isn't that what the church in Ephesus did? They're reading their Bible. They're, they're, they're obeying God. They're, they're, they're standing against wrong. But he says, you've left your first love. How, how, do, we, how do we make Jesus our treasure once again? Not just as we prepare for Christmas, Christmas but day by day. This is what God wants to do in us this Christmas. This is what he has come to do. This is, this is what he was born to do, Jesus. Is that we might see him as a wonder child. That we would love him, treasure him to the extent that we couldn't help but tell others about him. And when we wrestle and fail in that way, he still comes alongside and says, I'm here to help. Come to me. I'll help. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are weak. We do wander. We are weary at times. And yet we do see the wonder of Jesus. And we want to see him. We want to see his beauty. We want to remember the darkness of our sin and the, the, the greatness of his light. And we want to be people who love and cherish him. And we want others to see him as well. Today, Father, I pray, give us your spirit that we might once again and day by day see the wonder of Jesus and what he has come to be and to do. We pray it in his name. Amen.